tonight on a special episode of A Current Affair. What is brewing in that soup? Well, what are they called? The secular soup. Secular soup. Okay, I will. Miss Lyons, what was your husband like before he started working for secular soup? Oh, he used to have so much of a spark of life. But now, now, he's been ruined. Absolutely ruined. The shocking story of a man driven to desperation. He spends all day and all night staring into the computer screen and just endlessly screaming, fuck, why? So Mr. Lyons, is it true that you're not even paid for doing this? You're essentially a slave to do this work? What, what, did he have anything over you? Did he hold over you? Well, I mean, you know, just my manly bits. I mean, they dangle those out in front of me occasionally to remind me that I used to have some, but other than that... A good man emasculated for the sake of a bowl of soup. They told me the great thing about it is all men get to move to Canada under their plan, so all, all cis men Sorry, cis, white, straight men have to go to Canada, so I'm looking forward to getting the health care. We go deep undercover to release the information that is shocking America. Miss Lyons, how has this endless work your husband has been under, how has it affected you? Oh, my life is in shambles now. I have a zombie of a husband. He spends all day sitting in that chair, trying trying to make some sense out of the meaningless noises which just emanate wildly from his speakers. I can barely stand to hear it myself. I've taken up smoking crack, so I have to go outside every 20 minutes so I can have a reprieve from that awful noise. Has slavery come back? Uh, Mr. Lyon, are you under duress when you say this question? Did you answer these questions? Are you under duress right now? Blink once for yes. I am completely duressed right now, yes. I have on pants and a shirt. What do they want? Mr. Lyons, is it true that at this point you've done so much of this work now you can't even stand the view of stew or soup or anything liquid? I don't like liquids. I can't even have coffee because coffee reminds me of burnt bean soup. A heart-wrenching, deep undercover investigation reveals the shocking truth. Stop hitting me! I'm almost finished! Stop hitting me! I'll finish as fast as I can! Stop hitting me! All this and much more on The Current Affair. Hello, I'm Dr. Hector Garcia, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists, you know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that, but with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed, I'm an Coming at you before the next full moon, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I might not be funny or smart or athletic or good-looking, and I kind of forget where I was going with this. Joining me as usual is a team that if it could get paid for sarcasm, they'd have full-time employment. Oh my god, yes I would. 
Now she thinks that men think with the wrong head, Nancy. I do what? <laughs> well, they do. You think men think with the wrong head? Oh, oh okay. And she thinks women talk with the wrong lips. <laughs> Christina. <Ew. laughs> that didn't hit as well. And she just thinks there's something wrong with me. <laughs> Kristen. <laughs> right about now I do. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, welcome back. I hope you had a great week. Well, you've got me on about three hours of sleep. Oh, that's so. a fantastic week. Sounds like great fun. Three hours of sleep. Wow, looks like a... Banker's hours. Fantastic. Good for you. <laughs> I'm going back to bed after this. <laughs> so today we'll be talking to your old friend Thomas Westbrook of Holy Kool-Aid. Oh, but first, yes. let's get into a bit of chit-chat. That's going to be on the second half of the show. Did you guys hear that Earth has a new moon? <laughs> yes! Uh-huh. Now, this is not the plot of the fifth element. <laughs> no, this is uh, February 19th. Astro- astronomers in Arizona spotted a dim object across the sky, and it wasn't a, star- uh, a steam-powered rocket. <laughs> it's a small rock the size of a car, and they called it 2020 CD3. They calculate it's been gravitationally bound to Earth for about three years now. Oh, it's just a baby. <laughs> so this is the second time that we've been able to tell that an asteroid has been caught. Um, in 2006, there was a 2006 RH120 that hung around the Earth for 2006 and 2007, then it escaped. So the orbit of uh, 2020 uh, CD3 is not stable either. So they think that eventually it will escape. So kind of like the slingshot that's effect. That's okay. Gonna, yeah, we'll exactly. enjoy it while it's here. That's right. So um, Saturn news. Climate change has uh, forced polar bears to turn cannibals. I saw this. Yeah. yeah. Now, climate change has made their uh, normal abundant food so- source kind of scarce because they usually hunt on the ice. Mm-hmm. And since the ice is melting, they have to stay on firm land, which is, you know, really tough for them. Um, with less hunting uh, grounds because of the ice melting, uh, large males have been uh, spotted attacking females and cubs. Now, polar bears have been known to be cannibals in the past, yeah. but that's in extreme cases. But in this, uh, the climate change has actually increased that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, bears have also, the polar bears have also been uh, starting to uh, hoard carcasses. So when they have a kill, they're starting to bury them in the snow mm-hmm. and keep them for later. Mm. So it's a, it's a grim reminder of the mm-hmm. really, really harsh reality yeah. they're facing. Yeah, and if we know that they stay around. Yeah, if we know that about polar bears, just think of all the stuff we don't know yet. Yeah, it's going to be uncovered. This is, you know, that's as they say, the tip of, I don't mean at the tip of the iceberg, (laughs) but yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and in better news, uh, you know, there's 195 countries in the world, and uh, U.S. News did a report, and Canada, believe it or not, came in number two. Yeah, out of what? No, like, but like for what? Best countries in the world. How did they judge that? Yes, that's a good question. It's America we're talking about. <laughs> They're not exactly the best judges of character. Canada had high scores in quality of life, citizenship, and businesses. Okay, that's fair. And they scored a 9.9 out of 10. It's also stated that Canada is also seen as the most trustworthy in the world. And if you're wondering, number yeah. one country was Switzerland. It did not have a rank for uh, the United States I was trying to find, but it was not mentioned in the article. It was probably a little too far down. Yeah, yeah it's because I've... it's still sinking and they can't find a number low <laughs> yeah. enough yeah, at so. this point. Yeah, we're living in a pretty damn free cool Well, country. you know, almost all of the polls show Canada in the top at least 12. Oh, you know, I yeah. haven't seen anything that's 
it's been lower. No, usually, I was about to say top five for yeah, most places, yeah. for most things. So I'm not sure where you're getting the 12 there, but I'm sure there's well, some places where we failed. It depends on how they're <laughs> ranking the Scandinavian countries mm-hmm. in that on that particular poll. Yeah, yeah. Who's of doing course, it? Of course. Because I've seen it all the way from two to, to 12, somewhere in through there. But that's okay. We're up there because oh, we're absolutely. good. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sometimes I mock our, our American friends and, you know, say, hey, you know, we should move to Canada because we're demonstrably a better country now. You yeah. can tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Science, man, it doesn't lie. Yeah, All right. We are. Um, I, I want to ask you guys, you know, there's been a lot of uh, talking about that uh, coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And I uh, was kind of wondering if you guys had some thoughts, but we haven't really discussed. Wash your hands. Sure. Well, yeah, of course. Just wash your hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, for like, for everything, but you know, Nan- Nancy's coughing in her or her, yeah. her elbow because she doesn't want to spread the coronavirus. That was from the latest kill in China. Post nasal right? drip. Post nasal drip. Honest, honest. Only people who seriously have to worry about it are immunocompromised people, elderly, and kids. Well, like, maybe, well, maybe yes. in this country. In yeah. a place like the United States, where most of your medical funding comes from GoFundMe, yeah. I think something like the coronavirus is a very serious thing. Yeah. Well, what I what I mean is that it's it's not a virus that is gonna it's not going to kill you if you're relatively healthy. Do you think? Well, at this stage, we really don't we really don't know. Yes. You know, because yeah. there are what eighty thousand deaths so far, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, it, it's, it seems to be great. It's, it, we're right at the point where it's becoming a pandemic rather yeah. than an epidemic. So it's hard to tell as this thing um, spreads who's mm-hmm. the most vulnerable or, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it could mutate. I mean, I don't know enough about epidemiology yeah. to, to say much more, but it's scary, you know, and everybody's going to have to be very cautious. And the testing kits are going to have to be uh, handed out you know, a little, you know, they're going to have to have more testing kits mm-hmm. so they can they can at least test mm-hmm. people, yeah. um, especially in the U.S. I don't want to get into that political but, I mean, quagmire. I, I, as, as, I, this is why I cringe. I wouldn't want to be an, an American citizen because just getting tested is unaffordable in the States. It's just, you know, you, you go well, to a doctor's case. It's not that it's unaffordable. It's just the CDC put, put out flawed tests, yeah. and then they didn't come back in time to be able to test as many people as need needed to be tested but uh, the the testing isn't going to be for people the testing isn't going to be all that expensive it's it's the way that whole epidemic is being handled that's going to get well, yeah, more trouble they, than they the put test. Mike Pence in charge this guy doesn't believe in evolution he <laughs> thinks disease is a curse from god i mean and for Christ's sake oh, yes. trump says it's going to disappear yeah, yeah. as soon like as it gets warm yeah so forget about the tests but uh, we're we're just at the beginning of this. Where, wherever we are in another month or so, it's going to tell us, you mm-hmm. know, a little bit, little bit more. You were about to say, dear. Yeah. Can you guys still hear us? Because the cat walked by, hit a cord, and we lost audio. You lost audio completely. No, I can hear you. Yeah. You can hear us. Okay. <laughs> Got to fix our our headphones. Freaking cat. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, because that's still picking up. So. All right. So um. Yeah, because I, I'm really I'm really um going to be surprised to see because right now they're 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 approaching the 2020 uh the, i mean the uh, the election obviously uh and it's going to be very interesting to see because the front runner is bernie sanders and he's proposing medicare for all will the coronavirus push the americans to really stop and adopt medicare for all no you don't no. think so no no 
because this isn't this is going to be this is like a one-time event this isn't something you know that's yeah, like but chronic. How, how bad would it have to get for people to start thinking okay you know we need to I can't sh- I can't shell out five grand to get tested for a freaking flu virus. Well, it, it's not going to cost. It, the, the The virus testing is not going to be an an expense. But the treatment will. Or the, the, uh, hard, I, I don't I, I don't know I don't I don't. Think I mean, so. unless they make it I some think kind it's of over. It's overall, um, uh, you know, uh, it's the insurance companies that that drive a, a lot of the. Uh, drive a lot of the the expense as well so mm. it's complicated you can't just you know say if one thing improves then everybody's going to say oh yeah now we're ready for medicare it's a it's a it's a philosophical um uh, problem in the u.s of how mm. they think about medicare for all mm. socialism it's 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 more that than I, I think resisting medicare for all i think eventually they're going to have it oh, but i don't think the coronavirus is going to be you know what drives it forward yeah and i mean the coronavirus is just the next thing to go yeah. oh my god coronavirus and then in a few years it'll be something else exactly yeah. i think for our american listeners they have to understand that canada wasn't always a country with socialized medicine either and it was a time where we had basically the same kind of Amer- uh, medicine uh, state that the Americans have. It came, it, it, it happened, a gentleman by the name of Tommy Douglas came in and basically uh, a politician changed all that. And fairly recently, actually, also in our history. And today, uh, Medicare for all is so ingrained in society that if you're a politician in Canada and you would suggest, you'd be bold enough to suggest going back to an American style, you just committed. You know, political suicide. You're done. You, you, people don't even want to talk to you. So, you remember, was it like 10 years ago, they had the show, The Greatest Canadian, where they basically did, uh, um, they were trying to make a contest, who was the greatest Canadian of all time? And they had people like uh, uh, Terry Fox, and they had people mm-hmm. like uh, Bethune, and, and, and you know, uh, Wayne Gretzky, and uh, John McDonald, and stuff like that. And Tommy Douglas came in as the greatest Canadian. The guy who gave us socialized medicine, you know, came in as the greatest Canadian. And he today, he's a, a revered figure in Canadian political history. So for our American listeners, don't be afraid of this. This is a good thing. This is a really, really good thing. And, you know, they gotta, they got to be able to beat that fear. I don't know what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Time. Yeah. It's going to take yeah, some implementation. But the problem um, is, is people are suffering in the meantime, right? But that's been for, for quite a long time. They... they They've str- the U.S. has struggled with the kind of uh, medical system that they want f- for, what, the past 20 years, mm-hmm. 30 years? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody hated um, Medicare, you know, just regular Medicare when it, not everybody hated it, but everybody said that was going to be the death knell, mm. you know, that, that Medicare was going to destroy the economic yeah, they system. Yeah, they've been saying that since and it's not, the 50s. I mean, it's the Republicans that have been, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. crying gloom and doom for everything. But I think it's, if, the, if the Democrats come back in and the progressives come back in and we can overcome Trump and open our... You know, people can can open their minds a little bit more to what democratic socialism really is about. I think there'll be more acceptance. But at this particular juncture, the coronavirus isn't going to move the, the no. needle one way or the other. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to have a look at. Yeah. Anyway, my dear Nancy, you got a top ten for us? 
Oh, sure I do. <laughs> oh, of course you do. And, and it's interesting that we're talking about the coronavirus because the top ten is about the scariest future possibilities. The scariest future possibilities? <laughs> Number one, left out of valley takes over the world. That, that, that was, how did you know that was going on? <laughs> Donald Trump yeah. gets another term in office. Oh, God. Okay. Destroys democracy. <laughs> Yeah. He's already done that. Anyway, so... Oh, well, no, I mean, like, full-on, like, I'm never leaving the presidency, which he's one stated he wants to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, my so, dear. Okay, so starting starting with the um, with the fringe and not the, the, most, the, the most scariest, number 10 is running out of new music. This, I know the scariest possible is music is close to being a human need. It's gotten to the point where every few songs get an artist sued by another artist. Mm-hmm. And so, so this list says the number of possible music combinations is high, but very few of them sound good. So the, the thought is that eventually music is going to sound like crap. Rather oh, it's than already good there. Music, <laughs> you know, that people can relate to and enjoy. So do you think that should be on the list of scariest uh, future things? There is this wonderful documentary I watched a couple of years ago called Rip a Remix Manifesto. And they talked about copyright law. And it's, it's we should actually do a show on this because, you know, it's, it, it's about how copyright law has incredible influence in our lives. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why people will think today, say, how come there's no good music anymore? Like some of the older guys say, there's no good music. I mean, the best shows you have right now are still acts from the 70s, the Rolling Stones and stuff like that, right? They're still the biggest draws. Why is that? It's because of copyright law, because they're all suing each other left, mm-hmm. right, and center for little bits of jingle. You can have like two seconds yeah. that reminds them of their song. They're in court yeah. with you. Absolutely. And that makes it very hard for a new artist to come in because you need inspiration from a public domain. Well, yeah. And the public domain, well, you know, anyway, we don't want to go into <laughs> this right now, but thank you. Thank you, Walt Disney, for that. Public yeah. domain used to be 14 years to get to public domain. Now it's almost 100 years. Gross. So number nine, artificial intelligence. Mm. It's too early to know all the ways um, AI will impact humanity and all of its uses. Um, maybe even new crime, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen, what's not. But it might change the world as dramatically as did the Industrial Revolution, maybe. I'm excited mm-hmm. for this so future. That's, that's a, but it's a scary possibility because it could be used nah. either way. I personally welcome our um, uh, robot overlord. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the premise stands that an artificial intelligence would have the same kind of reaction that we have and perceive another intelligence. Because as humans, I don't know, let's say, for example, there was some kind of weird biological thing that made dolphins uprise as an intelligent species. We would probably view that as a threat to our dominance on the planet. Now, the, th- the, the premise is that an artificial intelligence would emerge and see us as the competition want to eliminate AS2. But the reality is we have uh, no idea how another emerging intelligence would react to us. Maybe they'd want a partnership. Yeah. Maybe they would want to eliminate us. Maybe they'd say, oh my God, no, no, we got to be super friends or whatever, right? So, but... Anyway, it's yeah. how many movies has been made on something like that, yeah. right? <laughs> Number eight, water scarcity. Oh, that's oh, that, yeah. that's right. Yeah. There's plenty of water. That's like the most likely one. But it's the poisoning of the water. Yeah. Not so much the scarcity. Yeah. Only three. Happy <laughs> we're in Canada. Oh, yes. Yeah. Only, most of it. Only three percent of the world's water is actually uh, fresh, mm-hmm. and much of it is polluted beyond human use at this point. Three mm-hmm. percent. 
and so less than three percent. Yep. So there's already a scary, scary thought. Cities that have run out of water. Like, yeah. I think it was in South Africa, like last year or something. If you follow, where if you they follow, ran. There was a city that's like, yeah, no, we aren't gonna have any water mm-hmm. in a week. We're gonna die. <laughs> no, they didn't say they were gonna die, but they they figured it out somehow to fix it, but. They were legitimately like out of water. Yeah, if you fo- if you follow a lot of the big players in the market, you're realizing right now they're purchasing water. Yeah. They're purchasing water rights. They're purchasing aquifers. The Bush family, for example, in the states, purchasing a lot of aquifers out in South America. Yeah, the next big wars are not going to be over oil. They're going to be over water. Yeah. Number seven. Yeah. This is really this this is the strangest thing on this list ever so i'm gonna put it out there because it's Chocolate. on the list and we can talk about it sex bot culture ah! it's, this a, is far, it's a complicated oh my god this is a great invention no not really how is not really how no, is because, this not awesome no because if you if everybody has a sex bot for example then human interaction becomes nothing and human interaction becomes nothing then reproduction <laughs> grinds to a halt so yeah, there, there <laughs> there's are, already way too many of us. There are times yeah, in your life where you want that intimate interaction with another human being. Well, there are other times where you just want to get off. Yeah, that's fine. And you don't want to have to deal with another person. Well, Sex bots are bionic, perfect for the second. Bionic penis 3000. Yeah, looking at it different way, is it, is it a good thing to give lonely men robots that they can beat or rape? So that they don't yeah, go out and and but, objectify women. But I mean, if it's not a that they robot, might, it's it not rape. Well, no, no. Why? Well, yeah, that's that's another thing, right? Uh, there's there's so many questions about that. What about people that have the uh, are pedophiles? Do you give them a doll? You know, I'd much rather them have a doll than a real human child. But <laughs> are you enabling? Yeah, that well, to continue. That's, that's, Those are, there's so many questions we need to ask about these things, yeah. and it's not. Oh, we're not going to cover that's this. Why I said, this is like, <laughs> that's a conversation. That's why I said yeah. this is such a weird thing mm-hmm. to put on for scary yeah. possibilities. But when you when you think about it, you realize, oh my gosh, look at the, you know the ripples. Yeah, you know, from yeah. The, yeah. I personally think that that sex bots are a great invention. You want one tomorrow? Nah. Approved by Christine. I'll Tonight? Is it too I, long? I have, like, the lowest libido on the planet. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm asexual, so... <laughs> yeah, too I much information think, at this yeah. point. I'm, I'm not putting my order in for them either. It's okay. Okay, number six, running out of fossil fuels. Oh, well, yeah. Energy systems are going to need to overhaul, and we'll who knows how many economic struggles mm-hmm. and abandon things and structures. And this it's is not, why it's, every, it's scary. every fossil fuel project that we do right now, we should also do a counter one to it to start weaning ourselves off. Mm-hmm. For yeah. every time they, they build a, a refinery, they should be built a solar plant or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. This is what should happen right now. Yeah. Number five, overpopulation. Yes. I told you there were too many of us. <laughs> there are too many of us. It is. It's starting to level off, but if it doesn't stagnate, Goodbye, peaceful walks in the park. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's not, it's not just that. I mean, a lot of people have this stupid notion, you know, they're, they're flying over the country. So, oh, it looks like it's mostly empty space. It's not, it's not the, the, the way that people occupy space. It's the overconsumption of resources mm-hmm. that makes it that we're overpopulated. Yeah. And, and humans are wasteful creatures. Oh, absolutely. Incredibly wasteful. Anyway. Number four, asteroid impact. You never know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's reasonable. Yeah, it works for the dinosaurs. See, with with that, I'm not actually that afraid of, because a lot of, like, 
a lot of space exploration and science is around tracking asteroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's no yeah, but there's no way in hell we're tracking all of them. No, but no. I'm I'm not like I'm way more scared of water shortages. Well, and, yeah. I think I think like it's, it's global warming that I'm moving out. But the, the thing, the thing, well, the reason for that is water shortage is something we can do something about it. There's nothing yeah. we can do about an asteroid coming our way. Well, but how do you know? We could go all like Armageddon. No, <laughs> no, we we don't have the technology, and uh, even but so, I you mean all those science fiction movies about deflecting are not right. Well, I, I've asked oh Bruce gosh. Willis, and he told me no, it's just a rule. I'm fairly sure that if there was an imminent threat, the world would come together. To there figure is, out what to do. Yeah, Either that or it'll be the climate change or not. Yeah. <laughs> Number three. But climate change is more of like, is more conceptual. People are a lot, it's a lot easier for people to understand. There's a big rock coming toward the planet that will kill us all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's just right out of the movies. It's wonderful. Number three, war. Right. World peace. Eh, we don't know how close it is, but just because mm-hmm. of horrendous another war, would be, you'd think especially when be... people like Trump are heading yeah. countries. Well, if you yeah. if, if you listen to last Johnson. week's episode, and we, we talked to Doctor Hector Garcia. Uh, you know, I I, I pose a question. Says, you know, in in the old days, war was a question of acquiring resources. We don't war for that today because we actually create war as a resource itself. We're creating wealth with fighting. Mm-hmm. So it's there's a complete other dynamic all of a sudden, and why we go to we fight, and it's it's interesting to see that although we are in a technological adolescence as a species, we could say, when it comes to aggression, we're still very infantile in our thinking. Anyway, it's a great interview. I think you should, I suggest you listen to it if you haven't. We should just Number give everyone two. pool noodles. Yes. <laughs> Number two climate change which of is what course it's not the future it's i mean it's, it's now um and uh it's just that this administration at least in the u.s isn't taking it seriously and it's a ticking time bomb really because it's it's still a big hoax to a lot of people who are in power and that's that this i think that the administration is a scarier future possibility than anything else you know oh, I, I think that they, they should have put the republican party of the u.s <laughs> on this list that's, to me the <laughs> that's number scariest. one okay anybody want to guess what number one scariest future Global possibility warming. is well i think that would fall under climate change dear yeah yeah. That's cl- yeah. Oh, my God. Climate change. Sorry, I wasn't listening the last, like, okay. three seconds. No, That's you okay. know, the behind no. the scenes. She doesn't even <laughs> listen to the show as we're doing it. That's okay. I'm so embarrassed. Number one, <laughs> antibiotic resistance. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. People 100% yeah. over medicate. I mean, anti-vaxxers. Yeah. It's already for, a serious anti-vaxxers, issue. Anti-vaxxers, for example, have actually been officially declared a threat to mankind by the, well, by the UN. Well, the um, antibiotics, that, that actually doesn't have anything to do with no, 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 but I mean, anti-vax. No, of course not. But I mean, it's still... What, what the antibiotics resistance is, is what's been happening is people have been getting antibiotics over-prescribed for everything... Yeah. And evolution happens. Exactly. So simple things that were easily cured with antibiotics are now that you just can't fix them anymore because well, these yeah. new strains have come that are resistant to antibiotics. Yeah, so exactly. there will most likely come a time where things that used to kill us, we got could cure them with antibiotics, will start killing us again because 
we can't help. The, the bacteria or the virus has evolved beyond and we can resist whatever it was, yeah. penicillin or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a scary, scary thought. Thank you, Nancy. That was a great list. Yeah, it is. A, it was an interesting, yes, interesting it was. list. Yeah. Let's all come. <laughs> oh, we can. Oh. We can hear again. Yay. It's time for another brilliant moment. Brought to you by religion. Okay. So, sad news. Uh-oh. Oh, no. We we aren't going to find out if if the earth is flat. What? Or, or round. No. Please Uh-oh. don't tell me. Yeah. Mad Mike Hughes was killed on Saturday afternoon after his rocket crashed on private pop property in california no mike mike all this steam-powered technology i really felt sad when i when i read that i really did it's like the end the end of an era yes yeah it's the end of the steam era (laughs) so the science channel said on twitter that it had been chronicling hugh's journey and that thoughts and prayers go out to his family and friends during this difficult time Uh, Hughes, if you didn't know, just a little... We talked tidbit. about him in the past. We have, of course. How can we not? Yeah. You know, trying to take a steam-powered rocket to see if the Earth is round. Mm. Yeah, that's a lot of math involved and a lot of intelligence. Well, I, you know what? I, I, gotta, I gotta give some credit to the guy. You know, he put his money where his mouth was. He really did. He, was he really did. He was dedicated. He absolutely was dedicated. I mean, the guy says, no, the Earth is flat. I'm gonna try to prove it. I don't know why he's using a steam-powered rocket, but whatever. But he he was working on it. And he launched himself up in the air. Many Mm -hmm. times. Many times. And I guess it was somewhat (laughs) uh, predictable that eventually he would come back down crashing. So his rocket went flat, but the Earth isn't. Yeah. (laughs) So a video on TMZ showed the rocket taking off with what appears to be a parachute tearing off during the launch. Uh, the steam-powered rocket streaks upward and then takes up around 10 seconds to fall straight back to Earth. And apparently shrieks can be heard as the rocket plows into the desert. Ooh. Which is not a pleasant... I'm like, ooh. No, that's, no. No, that's not pleasant. I'm like, that's, no. that's not good. No. Uh, freelance journalist Justin Chapman, who was at the scene, said the rocket appeared to rub against the launch apparatus, which might have caused a mishap with the parachute, and I can absolutely see that happening. Mm-hmm. I mean... It could have been something, just one of those random technological things that happen. But sadly, we will not have any answer as to whether or not the Earth is truly flat or round. Yeah, I, 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 you know, like I said, you know, I'll give him credit where it's due. But you know what? This is not surprising. This is just doesn't surprise me. You know, this is. <sighs> when they had the document, I never did see that documentary on um, the Flat Earthers. Mm. Was he in that? I think so. It's, it's a while that? back, but I think he actually was. I think there's a brief appearance of him in there. Yeah. How can you not? Yeah. I mean, at the, at the time they made the documentary, he was pretty much, you know, making the rounds and everything. Yeah, because so. he, was, he was a unique character in, in many ways. I mean, he, he had his beliefs. He stuck to them. People said he was wrong, but, you know, people say a lot of scientists are wrong, and they come out on top, so he... Decided yeah. to persevere and do what he wanted to do. Well, like I said, I admire, I admire his um, dedication. Yeah. To his to his to his belief, and yeah. you know, and I kind of wish there was a different ending to that oh, story. Oh, of course. But it's like at the same time, it's like ah, you know what, Mike? Thanks for the laugh. 
That's all yeah. I can say. You know, it's all it's all I can say. It's like, unfortunately, you know, it's like this 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 was all too preventable. All you had to do was climb on board a plane. Yeah, no. To fly to China or something, and you would have seen the. No, curvature. he did it. He did it his way. He did it his way. And and he left still doing it his way. Yeah. Yes, he did. So yeah. I, I guess I guess we got to give him that. So. Yeah. There, yes. there is. There's something admirable. Yeah. A little, yeah. little crazy, but admirable. He's so, yeah. to his guns. It's yeah. a shame because you know at least he was he was good for a laugh. And it would have been even funnier if he had taken uh, Swishy Lady with him. <laughs> oh, not the Swishy Lady. She swishes her stick. No, as that's, we need Swishy yeah. Lady. So anyway, oh. I'm sure anyway. I'm sure there's somewhere down the road there's going to be another Mike Hughes 2.0 somewhere. Yeah. Oh, I am sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, my dear. And uh, let's take a quick pause. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Thomas Westbrook, our old friend from Holy Kool-Aid. So you stay with us. It's not easy being a podcaster these days. And even less so when you're a woman. So when we heard the good people at Secular Soup needed help, we sprang into action. This holiday season, open your hearts to Amy and Amy of Secular Soup. You, too, can make a difference in the lives of these poor podcasters. For less than the price of a cup of coffee a day, you, too, can make a difference. You can help them change their diet of tomato soup and blueberries into something with actual flavor, like rice cakes, white jelly beans, or even tofu. These women work so hard. Allegedly. And still get pranked by the people of LATV. I mean, how deep is the bottom of that barrel? Your donations can help them return a prank in kind instead of making creepy doll lamps and weird cushions nobody wants. Your kindness can help Amy and Amy find jobs more suited to their incredible talents, like street mine, elevator attendant, or even store mannequin. In this season of giving, your donation might even give them the idea of using a pseudonym instead of the same name. There is hope for the soup. Call now. Operators are standing by. Wow. Listen to these phones ring. That's great. Amy can get that new liver she needs. A generous donation will even provide some onions to go with it. <laughs> do you know where Saskatchewan is? Probably not. It's in Canada. If you do, you might know a city named Regina. In Regina, there's a studio. And in that studio, there are, at least once a month, a bunch of skeptical atheist geeks and goofballs who get together to do a podcast. We are the Brainstorm Crew, and we're trying to help spread a bit of reason and critical thinking while still having fun. Never taking things too seriously, but still not accepting everything we're told, we go through different topics, exploring them in depth, and often disagreeing. We try to stick to provable facts, and we never trust a myth. That's why we say we're woo-free since 2000. 2013. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker under Brainstorm, or check out our website, brainstormblog.net. I can't promise you'll always agree with us, but I can promise you'll have fun listening to us.
By the end of this century, if emissions keep rising, the average temperature on Earth could go up another four to eight degrees. What I'm saying is the planet's on fucking fire. There are a lot of things we could do to put it out. Are any of them free? No, of course not. Nothing's free, you idiots. Grow the fuck up. You're not children anymore. I didn't mind explaining photosynthesis to you when you were 12, but you're adults now, and this is an actual crisis. Got it? I don't know where the lights are taking us. All right, well, our next guest is a returning champion. He's a conference organizer, a podcaster, a YouTuber, a traveler, and he's done everything and anything. He's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer, Thomas Westbrook. Holy Kool-Aid, welcome back. Hi, it's great to be back. Thanks you for having me. You say that now, but you will regret this in about five minutes at this point. <laughs> he's been here before. He no, knows what he's, he's doing. Yeah, I mean, he's it was over a year ago since he's been here. It took a year for him to recover from the last time he came. He's so. a repeat offender. We're okay. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't changed. Thomas, how have you been, my friend? I'm doing fantastic. I should be the one warning you guys because you're not sure what you're about to get yourselves into. Well, we're pretty sure. God damn it. We just came like <laughs> Canadian Atheist Podcast of the Year. We got some credit behind us now. That's Congratulations on that, show. by the way. Oh, thanks, man. You're all hard. You're all hard. I'll send you the $50 as we agreed. Uh, <laughs> Thomas, for our listeners that might not have heard you the first time, maybe you'd be so kind to give us a quick bio as to who Thomas Westbrook is. My full-time thing is I make videos online on YouTube that are animated, short, laser-focused educational videos. And I take complex topics and I break them down, mostly relating to science, religion, philosophy, and skepticism. And on top of that, I also organize a conference once a year in Texas called the Faithless Forum. Mm. And I had a podcast for a while, but that's no more. Uh, but the, the biggest thing is I, I travel, I speak internationally, and I do YouTube. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you travel so much. I think you you, you competed with R and Raw at this point. Yeah. Where, where, <laughs> I think, where I, think I actually had more more trips last year than R and, but I'm, I'm not not sure about that yet. A new king is crowned. Yeah. <laughs> where where in Texas do you do you have your conference every year? Well, the last two were in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but this year we're doing it in Austin, Texas. Oh, Dallas-Fort Worth, yeah. isn't that where you killed JFK, Nancy? Oh, no, we don't talk about that. <laughs> she said she was buying a banjo. Sure she was, sure. In the little I'm banjo sure it case. was all under hypnosis. Yeah, yeah. it was a grassy knoll or something, I'm not sure. I just yeah. sit here and smile. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, so today we brought you back, Thomas, because for, first of all, we desperately need some good guests. And <laughs> second, you were that desperate, huh? <laughs> <laughs> good one. <laughs> Five points for him. And second, we wanted to talk to you about your new uh, venture, which you call Nothing Fails Like Bible History. So please, I just, first of all, I just love the title. That's just fantastic. It says it all right there. And please tell us, what the hell is that? Well, so I started off on kind of the the, the UFO uh, rabbit hole where I was making videos to talk about, you know, is there any evidence for UFOs? Mm -hmm. And while I was you know working on that series, I got a little sidetracked, as you do, where I, I started learning about the pyramids and I started, you know, looking into is there any you know evidence for how the pyramids were actually made? Do we know anything about that? And I was I was doing a whole video on that to talk about the conspiracy theories that typically spring up around UFOs and aliens building the pyramids or people who say that they're still living with us today and they're the Jews and they're part of the Illuminati and it's a grand conspiracy. And while I was studying ancient Egyptian history and learning all the ins and outs of the pyramids and what we do and don't know, I started to realize just how much 
how much history there is in ancient Egypt. It was the greatest civilization in the world at the time. And we have millions, literally millions of artifacts and writings and paintings and tombs and statues. It's, it's off the walls. And so I started asking myself, why is it that you know, we don't have any evidence for an exodus story. Because I, I always thought that, you know, maybe there was some small exodus that the you know Bible kind of pulled from. Maybe there maybe it was mythical, maybe it was legend. I didn't know. But as I started exploring this story, I started to realize that the evidence for the Bible in general, especially the the Old Testament, is extremely shoddy. It wait, it would wait, not hold, hold up in a court of law. A second. Hold are you telling me? That that wheel they found in the bottom of the Red Sea is not from the Pharaoh? <laughs> um, most likely not. <gasps> and the the I think the wheel that you're talking about was actually it was a guy I think his name was John Wyatt or it was something Wyatt. And th- this guy had these incredible discoveries for an amateur ar- a maverick archaeologist where you know he had no formal training he had you know no experience at all as an archaeologist but he just goes to the middle east and all of a sudden he starts discovering noah's ark and the you know tr- true location of sodom and gomorrah and jesus crucifixion site and the ark of the covenant and just all this stuff that is you know, it really begs the question, why do why have, you know, all of these archaeologists never found any of this stuff? And yet this maverick amateur comes along and in about 10 years, finds every single major Bible thing in existence. It's like this guy's either a major fraud or he's the luckiest man alive and should buy a lottery no, ticket. No, he's got the Holy Spirit with him, Thomas. Come on, man. This is simple. Come on. Why deny the glory of Christ? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it just must be a God thing. <laughs> Well, that shuts down the interview. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I just wanted to point out also, by the way, we do have, I know there's a lot of uh, uh, ancient history and, you know, like you said, the Jews have been the descendants of the Illuminati and all that. We all know that. We have Nancy with us. She told us all this from the beginning. So, Uh, Is she she an insider? No, she totally is. She's actually the insider. I've been here since. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nancy, are you also a member of the Freemasons as well, I take it? No. No, I've never. I've never liked those guys. They're, They're too they chauvinistic. Have, they have the worst dinners. If you ever go to, just forget it. <laughs> no, don't like those guys. And, and hence began the, the great Freemason right. versus Illuminati civil war of uh, 2020. Yeah. <laughs> this begins, yes, exactly, exactly. So I'm sorry, I interrupted there because I'm an idiot. Go ahead, Thomas, keep going, man. Well, so I started looking at, you know, what evidence we have, what the, the most likely explanations are for these things. And is there actually, if if the story of the Bible is true, what types of evidence would we and should we expect to find? And what type of evidence do we find instead? And it's it's just, it doesn't, it's not there. Like what, what we should expect to find is not there. And I'm actually doing a response video. I'm in the, the process of editing it right now, which is a response video to a Catholic apologist who basically came along and he did a response to my videos and he's like, well, you know, just because there's evidence there doesn't mean it didn't happen and here's the evidence that we have. And what he puts forth is extremely wanting. It's it's extremely, extremely wanting. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's things like, oh, well, there's mentions of the Habaru people in Egyptian and Mesopotamian texts. And the Habaru might have also included the Hebrews or the Israelites, but we're not sure if it does or doesn't. And it's basically a general term that applies to, you know, any kind of nomadic brigand slash bandit slash mercenary tribe in this general region over the course of a thousand years. It's like, okay, 
that's not proof of, you know, plagues in Egypt, of parting the Red Sea and, and, you know, killing, drowning, you know, the entire army of the Pharaoh. That's not proof of millions of people living in northern Egypt. That's not proof of a massive exodus and people living for 40 years in the Sinai and then coming to Canaan and slaughtering and wiping out all of the inhabitants there. Like, that's not good evidence. Just, oh, hey, there's there's mention of a tribe that might be Israeli. It's like no one's denying the fact that the Israelites existed. No one's denying the fact that at some point a tribe arose, you know, but it's just the evidence that we should find is not the evidence that we do find. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe I was told once that the period, especially the period that uh, of uh, the first century um, AD, I guess I should say, uh, around Jesus' time is one of the most studied period ever because of Christianity. Yet, hmm. yet, the, yet, yet the evidence is scarce. So am I, am I wrong in this? Um, so I, I actually I haven't gotten into the New Testament yet. Oh, okay, so I'm, I'm starting with the old and I'm kind of working my way forward. Okay, okay, and okay, not not 100% chronologically, but I figure if I, if I start with the Exodus, Jesus is going to kind of be the season finale where, <laughs> you know, I, I say, okay, so here's all the the you know, old stories. Now, is there anything, you know, reliable for the New Testament, for the stories of Jesus and stuff? And, and I think for the most part, from from what I've seen so far, the evidence for, you know, or, or at least the texts and, and how old the texts are and stuff for the New Testament is significantly better than the Old Testament, mm-hmm. but it's still significantly wanting. And I say that because if, if you look at what, what we have written down and recorded for Old Testament texts, the oldest stuff that we have is like the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they, you know, they have various dates because there's there were a lot of scrolls that were found, but like the oldest Dead Sea Scrolls mm-hmm. are like maybe the the third century BCE, like a good thousand years after the Exodus time period or, or that time frame. There's absolutely nothing that we have that dates back to you know the time of King David. There's nothing that we have that dates back to you know before the Exodus. There's no writings or, or any records whatsoever for you know the entire Genesis account aside from these texts. And it's like maybe they were written down, maybe they were derived from a you know one maybe there was like some Hebrew texts that were combined in like a uh, you know one Torah or Pentateuch in maybe the fifth or sixth century BCE which still would have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the Exodus and thousands of years after, you know, the Genesis creation story and the flood and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, where are these these origin stories? Where is the text in between these the, the, the event allegedly occurring and when it was allegedly written down and then the hundreds of years later when we actually have the oldest text that we have currently in existence that are extant? And so – there's just this this massive gap where it's like, okay, maybe there's little elements, maybe there's little tidbits and stuff of, you know, origin stories and truth taken from different tribes and different cultures and kind of amalgamated into one collective story. Maybe there's elements of historicity sprinkled throughout it, and I think that there probably is, but we just don't know where they came from. We don't know who wrote them down. We don't know the first thing about how reliable these stories actually are because it's it's based off of you know second third fourth hand accounts it's all a game of telephone we don't have the original text and that's that's just that's not good evidence how how much influence is there because it seems to me i don't know as i'm not a historian just as a lay person it seems to me there's huge amount of egyptian influence into the hebrew text is that is this just me or is it something that you've noticed as well 
there there is and a, a big part of that is that and there's there's also some semitic influences throughout egypt as well and a big part of that is because they border each other they're literally within walking distance you can walk from you know some of the the greatest cities in in egypt like you know cairo or alexandria or something to uh, you know jerusalem in a matter of days and you know now these are, are modern cities but it, you know the same would apply for you know places like you know thebes heliopolis karnak you know luxor all of these places are not that far away from from the land of Canaan, where you know the promised land where the Jews allegedly fled to, and where the the whole story of the the Old Testament and the Bible, most of it takes place. Um, so you expect to see a lot of influence. Well, at the same time, too, you have a big period for you know several hundred years from the the time of I think it was uh, King Thutmose the third or second. I, I could be wrong on the, the exact favor, but one of them invaded the land of Canaan and conquered the, the entire region. He, you know, he had this great battle at Battle of Megiddo and set up these Egyptian vassal states all throughout ancient Israel and basically controlled that that whole area for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you you see in in ancient um, Israel, you see remnants of Egyptian influence. You see, you know, mines where Egyptians are mining copper. You see uh, fortresses that have Egyptian hieroglyphics on them. You know, there's there's gates and stuff of these fortresses that remain to this day in you know southern Tel Aviv, which is uh, an area called Jaffa, which is where allegedly Jonah and the whale where he took off to to go out to sea. But it's like the, these these places you can find these Egyptian remnants and these fortresses and stuff, and so it's it's really not surprising that there's Egyptian influences. It's not surprising that the Israelites would have seen Egypt as an oppressor. It's not surprising that they would have seen themselves as under the yoke of Egypt because Egypt actually controlled Israel. They ruled over these these tribes. They set up vassal states. Mm-hmm. And there's there's entire museums in Jerusalem that have hundreds of, of artifacts and, and monuments and stuff and, and writings of ancient Egypt taken and found in Israel. So this is completely not disputed. Now, during the time period that allegedly the Israelites were leaving Egypt and fleeing to the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan was still under Egyptian control. So you have to ask yourself, why is Egypt fleeing from Egypt to more Egypt? Why are they fleeing (laughs) from Egypt to other Egypt? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And also, why did it take him 40 years instead of six days? (laughs) That's another thing altogether. They were going in circles. And one of of the – one of the defenses for this that, you know, in the response video I'm, I'm replying to is that, oh, actually the time frame is off that the Israelites, they didn't flee in, you know, the, the 15th century or the 14th century. They, they fled a couple hundred years later. And it's as the Egyptian control over this region was kind of dwindling. They hung out in the desert for 40 years and then they went into the land of Canaan. Well, that doesn't really make sense when you take it in context of the rest of the Bible because there's other Bible passages that say that the the Israelites fled uh, Egypt about 450 years approximately um, before the building of Solomon's temple. Mm. And we have a pretty good idea of when they chronologically placed Solomon's temple and it's, you know, I think around uh, – off the top of my head, I'm thinking around 950 BCE. Um, I could be off by by you know 100 years, give or take, but it's um, I can Google it, but I'm pretty sure it's right around there. And if you go back 450 years, it's it's right around you know the 1400s or so that yeah. um, the Israelites would have been leaving Egypt. So if the biblical timeline is consistent, if the Bible is accurate, then you know you can't really say that oh this time period that makes sense you know historically is when they must have done it. 
without discounting the the biblical narrative. So either the, you know the, the parts of the Bible are true and parts aren't, and you can kind of cherry pick which ones you want, or you have to say the whole Bible is true, in which case it doesn't match up to the historical evidence, or you can just say that the Bible's not really reliable. Well, hold on a second. Are you suggesting the Bible is not reliable? I am shocked. Shocked. No, oh, I would never. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, we're just going to have to end this podcast now. It's just that's it. We're done. The Bible is not reliable. Well, to be fair, I said either or, so I'll, I'll let you make up your mind where you want to go with that. <laughs> oh my God! So, <laughs> but uh, have you have you uh, have your uh, research and your studies that led you to? Because I, I also hear that apparently the the book of the Egyptian Book of the Dead also apparently had a lot of influence on the uh, Judaic texts. Is that has that also been part of your research? I've I haven't really looked into the Book of the Dead uh, specifically, but there's there's elements all throughout the region that influence the Bible. For example, you look at the Code of Hammurabi, uh, yeah. uh, Hammurabi, yeah. and there's the 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 idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is literally pulled straight out of that text, yeah. almost verbatim. Nancy was and, there. Go ahead. Nancy was right there. When the, remember how Hammurabi Nancy? I do. Yeah. <laughs> he had a lisp. She really hated that. <laughs> <laughs> and well, and, and you see, you see other other cultural influences throughout the region. There's there's different people groups that you know in Canaan they had a god named El, mm -hmm. and El was basically the head of the Canaanite pantheon. It was they had they were they were a polytheistic people group. They worshipped tons and tons and tons of gods, and then they had kind of one super creator god. And you you see that pulled into the Hebrew text. You have Elohim. You yeah. know, God is – it's like the, the god El is kind of pulled in as like the one god and it kind of morphs into this monotheistic religion. You have another people group, the Shasu, who had this god Yahweh. And so you have, you know, Yahweh and Elohim and kind of merged into this one God, the, you know, Judeo-Christian God. And you have elements of, you know, different Egyptian traditions as well kind of incorporated in. You have this, this story of oppression. You have um, people groups, tribes and stuff who would, you know, fight against the Egyptian vassal states and make problems with them and stuff. And so you can kind of see this animosity building between Egypt and Israel. And you can kind of get an idea of how this narrative, like little – stories passed down and songs passed down and stuff could kind of merge into a biblical story, especially when 500 years later or 700 years later, you have the um, the Israelites being uh, sent off into captivity in Babylon, and you've got them basically trying to find some grand unifying narrative to hold their culture together. And that's about the time that we have the Pentateuch, when we think that the Pentateuch was compiled and written down. So it's Am I saying that that's 100% how the, the text came about? No. I, I, a lot of that is speculation, but it makes a lot more sense than that there was this population of millions that was living in Egypt and that you know summoned down plagues and killed all the Egyptian firstborn and that the Pharaoh had this massive genocide where he wiped out all of the, the firstborn sons of, of Israel and then they part the Red Sea and then you know two million people wander in a desert for 40 years somehow and then go in and slaughter everyone in Canaan and not having any evidence for that. It's like between the two of these stories, I find it much more plausible mm -hmm. that there's little elements of truth, but that it's a much, much smaller scale and it's multiple tribes and it kind of merges into this, you know, kind of cohesive story rather than that all of this ridiculous, over-the-top, legendary, miraculous stuff is verbatim true. Yeah. So in, in your series, what's what's been the reaction to, to the public and maybe not just Christians but atheists and maybe even the scientific community? How have they been receiving your series so far? 
Well, so far it's been overwhelmingly positive. Oh, the good. the series has really taken off. I've put out three kind of a three part video um, thing, and I'm, I'm releasing the next parts here coming up. Um, I haven't really gotten a whole lot of response from the academic or historic community, um, but I I have had at, at least one response video from this uh, Catholic apologist. And I think he did he did a pretty good job, but I think that the evidence that he presents is extremely wanting. Like he was he was respectful, seems like a nice guy, seems well educated, and yet at the same time it's like he's so close when he says you know he'll he'll be like and this is the evidence that we have, but he just doesn't quite connect the dots with the fact that the evidence that we do have and the story in the Bible don't match up. And and he even says, he's like, oh, I don't think that there was an actual exodus in the sense of millions of people. And I don't think that it was, you know, that all of this is literal, but, you know, there it still somehow came from somewhere. It's like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It wasn't literal. It's not a true story. There may be little elements and, and nuggets of truth, but that draws the that draws the validity of the Bible as a history book into question because you start having to ask yourself how much of it is reliable, how much of it is allegory, how much of it is exaggerated. Mm. You know, did did Adam actually eat an apple or is that allegory too? Was original sin not actually a, a thing that happened? Did Christ die for an allegory? Did Christ exist at all? Was he an allegory? Mm -hmm. And and I, I'm not going to argue for you know mythicism or for you know against the historicity of Jesus yet. I, I might dive into that in future episodes and see. I'm personally, at least at this moment, I'm not a mythicist. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think it really matters. It's like if if you look at the the origin stories of, of Genesis and Adam and Eve and the flood and all of that, and if if you come to the conclusion that there's absolutely no way that this story is possible then that is the foundation. Those are the building blocks for the entire rest of the Gospels and of you know the story of Christ and salvation and everything. If you don't have a fall, what's the point? Mm, I totally agree. Uh, but at the same time, you, you say you don't want to pronounce yourself as a mythicist, but you're talking about Jesus. But what about these ancient figures? You take, for example, um, Tom Thompson, uh, who basically uh, basically refuted that uh, Noah, uh, not Noah, Moses ever existed? Has your research pointing out the same kind of support to his his conclusions? Have you uh, dealt into the subject yourself? Uh, well, so with characters like Moses, it is so far back mm -hmm. that it's it's hard to conclude one way or the other if there was a character named Moses. Now. Uh, we don't have any written records of Moses. We don't have anything written down that, that makes us think that there actually was a character named Moses. Uh, at the same time, though, there were different Semitic tribes and stuff that were um, involved with Egyptian politics. It wasn't very uncommon for Egyptians to have immigrants that would come and, and live in you know regions of, of Egypt and stuff and then go back to Israel or to come and be assimilated and start worshiping Egyptian gods. And – during that time period, we even have a Semitic people group called the Hyksos, and they were – it was a military people group that came in and they completely conquered northern Egypt and they set up a, a dynasty and there was a dynastic reign of uh, lower Egypt. Now, lower Egypt is northern Egypt and upper Egypt is southern Egypt, so it's a little confusing. But they're, they're in kind of the northern delta region and they set up a capital um, called Avaris in the – kind of right in the, the Nile Delta area and it was the biggest city in the world at the time. And we have extensive records about this. And – so, you know, the, this notion that, you know, you would have 
interactions between you know Israelis or not, not Israelis because uh, they, they aren't mentioned as Israelites they aren't mentioned as um, you know the, this people group that worships Yahweh and is monotheistic it was basically Semitic tribes there were tons of different Semitic tribes in the region and you have some of them like the Hyksos come in and conquer northern Egypt and actually become pharaohs but is that on par with the the biblical story of a a slave boy being you know sent you know in the river in a, a reed basket being discovered and you know becomes the the pharaoh's son and you know gains all of this power no it's it's not it's it's very different and there's there's even mentions of um Semitic viziers, which is kind of the right-hand man to the Pharaoh, and people say, look, that is – it's it's Joseph. It's evidence for Joseph. But then you actually look at the greater context and it's like, OK, but this person you know, who's mentioned has a son who they give an Egyptian name and becomes an Egyptian and worships Egyptian gods and quickly becomes assimilated into the culture. It's like – very, very different from the stories presented in the Bible. You know, you you do have some evidence of Semitic tombs, or not not tombs, uh, Semitic slaves, where you know Egyptians would go in, they conquer parts of Canaan, and they would bring prisoners of war back to Egypt, and they would have them, you know, build you know temples and monuments and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can point to that and be like, look, it's evidence of the Egyptians or the, the Israeli slave population in Egypt. But then you, you you can't just cherry pick. You can't just take little bits without the greater context. You have to have a better understanding of Egyptology. And most people don't when they're just looking for evidence for the Bible. But you sit down and you talk with an Egyptologist and they're like, okay, let's take a look at that. And there's, there's a um, specific tomb. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the, the name of it, but it's um, it, it has these depictions of Semitic and Nubian uh, slaves making bricks. Okay. And you're like, okay, but what is the context? Okay, well, there's actually hieroglyphics on, you know, next to and around the pictures that tell the story. And it's the, the story is these are not a Jewish population that came and traveled to uh, Egypt to, you know, avoid a drought, which is what the, the biblical story, the biblical narrative is that Joseph brought his family to Egypt, that they settled in, that, you know, they started to, to populate the area and then they became slaves, were enslaved by the Egyptians. It, that's not the case. The case is, you know, King, I think it was Thutmose the third conquered, you know, part of, of Canaan. And it says, these are the POWs that he brought back. So he brought back a, a small collective pocket of POWs. He didn't bring them to the land of of Goshen, which is where the Israelites are said to have have worked in the Bible on uh, the cities of uh, Pithom and Ramses. Instead, it's hundreds of miles uh, down south, and it's in Karnak, and they're they're building temples and they're POWs. So it's it's a very different narrative. There's just it doesn't it doesn't match the biblical story. So it's if there was this this population of a couple million people living in. Um, Avaris, which would later become Ramses in the Bible where the, the Israelites left from, you would expect to see that narrative. You would expect to see that story. You'd expect to see something in the Egyptian text saying, you know, we had we have this massive slave labor shortage because because Egyptians kept detailed records. We have yeah, records yeah. of them saying, you know, here's the, the workers that work in this area. You know, we need more workers here. Let's move some over here and stuff like that. And you would expect to see some of them being like, you know, there's a massive slave labor shortage and we just lost all these uh, firstborn sons and the entire army was wiped out and the gods opened up the Red Sea and swallowed the, the Pharaoh's army. And, you know, you'd expect to see, 
you know, Stella cursing the Israelites and saying how, you know, they're the dreaded, hated enemy and curses against Yahweh and all this stuff. But you don't see any of that. You don't see any records of it. It's it's incredibly lacking. And what, what you do see instead is exactly what you would expect to find if two bordering nations would have, you know, trade and, you know, occasional conquests and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah, because it's always one thing that I've always uh, I've always wondered is the, you're right. The Egyptians had a tendency to basically document absolutely everything, and you would think anything that's even remotely said about them in uh, in the Bible is there's no nothing at all. You you know the the slaves leaving the, the plagues. You think you think they have something about it, but there's no records whatsoever. In your in your experience, is there absolutely anything in the Bible that comes even remotely close to being? somewhat based in history um i mean there were there were nomadic tribes that would sometimes go to egypt for um like if there was a drought or a famine sometimes they would go to egypt because egypt would egypt was known for storing massive amounts of food and grain because sometimes the the nile floods which allowed for the harvest season could be unreliable and so and it was, you know, once a year that they would that the flood season would come and sometimes it would flood too much. Sometimes it would flood too little. So they would store up massive amounts of grain. And so for surrounding nations dealing with famine to come down to Egypt in order to, you know, purchase grain, that part of the story is that's that's not that's not uncommon at all. But that would have been the case for hundreds of years, even after the story of Joseph. That would have been well a well-known fact, a well-documented fact throughout um, the the land of Canaan. So it's it's not really surprising that you know someone writing down the the biblical text either before or after or during would be familiar with that and could incorporate that into a story. Um, other things, there's you know stuff like the name Moses. Moses is actually an Egyptian name. But again, that's not surprising. That's that would be like if if I were to write a story about how an American, you know, passed as a Mexican under the name Jose. It's like, oh, my God, how did he know that Jose was a Mexican name? It's like, well, I live in Texas. I'm on the border with Mexico. I have tons of Mexican friends. Of course, I'm going to be familiar with a couple of names. Mm -hmm. So for the Israelites to be familiar with the name Moses, that's really not surprising. And then there's there's little tidbits like they they got the slave price right for um, Joseph. They said it was 20 shekels, even though the price later went up to 30 shekels. They got it right by the old price, which it would have been the price at the time, even if they wrote it down hundreds of years later. OK, but again, that's, you know, really not that surprising because, you know, I, I could write a story about the Revolutionary War and, you know, ask some some people or look up some stuff or maybe have some some songs passed down or something or some poetry or, or written records that talk about how, you know, money has inflated or, you know, I, I can I can talk about muskets and not machine guns because I'm I'm aware enough about history or know enough about the culture to avoid those certain anachronisms. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you think that with all this evidence or lack of evidence in many in many aspects, that you still have um, most of academia and in, in uh, archaeological uh, circles will still somewhat uphold the historicity of the Bible? In your experience, is it is it you know why 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 isn't this more public? Um, I I would I would kind of disagree with that. I I, I think that. You know, if, if you talk to any archaeologist, Egyptologist, historian, or even um, biblical studies professor, almost across the board, they will look at the Exodus story and say, 
this did not happen the way that the Bible depicts it. There is just there is not evidence for it, and there's the evidence we should expect to find isn't there, and there's even contradictory evidence. Um, now, as far as the rest of the Bible, there are elements. There are elements of um, history sprinkled into it. You know, there's there's mentions of King Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius and stuff like that. There's there's mentions of you know the Babylonians coming in and taking the the Jews into captivity. There's there's all this this stuff that is written in a time period where this stuff is is taking place, and I think that the the Bible is potentially a useful tool in terms of you know, getting an idea of what might be true, but it's not really that reliable. And and you have to take a lot of it with a grain of salt. You know, you, you can't, you can't just look at a biblical story that has these grand narratives of these amazing victories written, of course, by the victors of course. and or alleged victors of, you know, God intervening and just, you know, coming in and the angel of God slaughtering hundreds of thousands of people. Those passages usually bear a, a whole lot more scrutiny. But if you have if you have a bi- biblical kind of more historical, uh, you know, section of the Bible, you know, that's talking about, you know, the invasion of, you know, Persia or of Babylon and you kind of complement that with what we know about the time and with the customs of the Babylonians and with, you know, the writings and records that we have throughout the rest of Mesopotamia, it's it's a good complementary source to some extent. But again, you, you almost every historian is is fully aware that with all of the over the top miracles and legends and exaggerations, you, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Wow. So, so if somebody, if people want to get more into this kind of uh, research uh, and and want to start looking for themselves, aside your videos, of course, where where would they start? Where, where would be a good resource? Uh, well, of course, with your videos, of course, we'll, we'll plug those in as well. But what would you recommend a person that wants to get into this? Because I find history is as fascinating and really kind of screws up your whole belief system for sure once you have a, a, an understanding of it. So what would you send these people? Ooh, that's that, that's hard because a lot of my research has kind of been all over the place. So I'll, I'll, I'll find I'll, – I'll take a particular topic that I'm interested in. So, for example, um, maybe I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is there any evidence for the exodus? And a lot of times I'll, st- I'll actually start with the Christian arguments – and I'll start with, you know, Bible archaeology or with, you know, um, arguments for from biblical scholars or biblical historians. And I, I actually try to go to um, academic papers and journals and stuff to, to try to find this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and or I'll, I'll look up something like, you know, Haaretz, which is a, um, a Jewish uh, newspaper publication um, or just Wikipedia. And then I'll kind of start looking at and kind of unraveling the thread. So I'll be like, okay, so they claim that this happened. Is there any, you know, contradiction? Is there any um, controversy here? Is there is this is there academic consensus? And then I start looking at other biblical scholars who might have, you know, contentions with it. So, for example, um, one of the the claims that is brought forth for the reliability of the Exodus story is um, there was. Uh, some text that we found in Hebrew from the 10th century. And so they're like, look, if if we had Hebrew text in the 10th century, then they could have been writing down these stories and not just passing them word of mouth. And to some extent, you have to apply a little bit of skepticism and, and just critical thinking to it and, and ask yourself, okay, 
does that even matter or is that a red herring? You know, who cares if they had Hebrew text? They could have written down stuff, stories in Egyptian hieroglyphics. It makes no difference. We still don't have the text. What is the earliest text that we have? So you can go on Google and you can look stuff up and you can, can you know, go on. Wikipedia is great because a lot of times even if Wikipedia – can be edited by anyone. Typically, they'll cite sources and link to other um, academic, you know, scholars' uh, books, and you can kind of read through, you know, either eBooks online or go to the library and and find sources there. Um, library academic college libraries are a great place to to you know go to to look into this stuff. As far as just having one like a one size fits all, hey, here's where you go to get the best information. I really can't point you in just one direction, just because it's a lot of it is scattershot. You'll find, you know, hey, there was a historian that documented this in the fourth century AD, and you can find, you know, the written text on this one website over here. And sometimes it's, hey, here's a you know historian that wrote down a you know in depth analysis of this and you know, some academic journal here. It's, it's kind of scattershot. I I think as long as you know how to fact check a source and as long as you know how to look for, you know, is this just bobsblog.com or is this, you know, maybe a .edu site? Mm -hmm. Is this an academic journal? You know, is this, who's writing it? Is it someone who has a PhD in archeology span or in biblical studies who's, you know, coming up with the critiques and the source material or is this, you know, just someone like uh, Wyatt, who's this maverick archaeologist who claims to have found every major thing in, you know, biblical times in 10 years. Yeah, don't you know they found Noah's Ark again and again, again. and again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, telling us all this today. But people want to find out more about your videos and your work. Where can they find you? Well, so most of my work is on holykoolaid.com is the the website where it's all aggregated. But I'm on Twitter at holykoolaid, and I'm pretty active there if you, if you want to hang out on Twitter. Uh, also on Facebook, I have a page called Holy Kool Aid, and all my videos are on YouTube.com/slash Holy Kool Aid. Um, for the the conference that we have coming up, it's the FaithlessForum.com. And it's a, a conference basically organized entirely by the atheist and skeptic YouTube community. And we have an incredible lineup there. So hopefully we can have you guys come out and, you know, have your listeners come out and hang out with us and, you know, learn how they can get their voice out there, how they can be effective in, in activism, you know, how they can support a cause and a movement that's really building a, a thriving community to, to push back against a lot of the, the dogma and the denigration of the non-religious. Hmm. Fantastic. Thomas, thank you so much for all this, my friend. I really, really appreciate this. But before I let you go, i got to have you say, Hi, this is Thomas Westbrook, and I took a left at the valley. Hi, this is Thomas Westbrook, and I took a left at the valley. And that was Thomas Westbrook. That was a plethora of information. Oh, man, oh, man. That was a... That was a great college mm-hmm. class right there. Nothing screws up your religious belief like a good history lesson. Yeah. Yeah, a good science lesson, but a good history lesson really yeah. screws that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the problem with the facts. They keep interfering with your beliefs. I know, right? What's yeah, up with that? Nasty you know, facts. You keep having those facts, and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, you can't do it. I, that's why you got to avoid them like, like the plague. And I love Thomas because he's so very charismatic. Isn't he? And, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. he obviously does a lot of great work. Yeah. And, you know, he's flying so much right now that, you know, I used to call R and R the hardest working man in atheism. I might have to revise that and give this year to yeah, uh, there's Thomas. A there's a contender. Yeah, there's a heavy-duty contender right there in, in Mr. Thomas Westbrook. So that's fantastic. All right. 
Thank you so much, ladies, for being with me today. And thank you for listening. And thank you to Thomas Westbrook for being with us as our guest. Uh-huh. You can find us on LiftTheDivide.com. You can find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter. What are you laughing at? I'm you laughing because I'm kind of sort of here. <laughs> I'm here in body, but I'm not necessarily here in mind. <laughs> and thank you, for Kirsten, for being here in body. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us at Facebook, Twitter, at TV Podcast. Send us an email at leftadvalley at outlook.com. Give us a, a five-star review where you find us. It helps us. It helps others find the show. Please give us a five-star review. That really helps us. And if you want to encourage and help the show grow, become a patron at Patreon slash LATV. All right. Coming up. Next week, we have a couple of special guests. We won't mention who they are, but you will find out next week. And there'll be the wrath of Secular Soup. And uh, we'll also be the guest ourselves on the James McGaffick show. So that should be interesting. And uh, we'll have our friend Dr. Ben Davis will be call- coming back to us. And as well, we'll be talking to Dave Warnock on the 21st. And after that, what else do I have? we get Neil, the 604 Atheist. And our friend Chris Shelton will return as well. We'll talk some more Scientology with him. Oh, great. So we got a lot of things, good things coming on the pipe, as per usual. And we'll have some more great things coming on the pipe, as per usual. Anything else I need to add, ladies? A, mil- a million dollars. Oh, hi, Christina. You're here. I am. Oh, look at that. So, oh, so, so, so kind of you to join us. Just need more coffee. Yeah, yeah just add a million dollars so that we can go to all these conferences and oh, that be podcasts nice? and, and visit all Twitter our Twitter friends. Fight. That would be nice. Yeah. But until then, we'll have to dream it. Thank you so much, ladies. Until next time. I don't care what you guys say. I think Thomas is a good man. <laughs> hey, Tom. How you hello, doing? Hello, hello. How's it going? <laughs> good. How about you doing? How you doing, man? Fantastic. Fantastic. Awesome. Perfect. Good to have you with us again. This is Nancy here. Hey, Nancy. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great as always. Kirsten and Christina are there with us as well. Yes, we are. I'm somewhat here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hello to you. It's, uh, you said Kristen and Christina? Kirsten. Kirsten. Or Kirsten and Christina. Okay. I'm I'm gonna try to put the names to the voices, but it's it's a little challenging. Well, I'll, I'll, this is Christina. I'll just talk so you can get my voice in your head. This is what I sound like. Okay, Kristen, now your turn. Now wait a minute, Thomas. <laughs> hey, Thomas, don't worry. You get the three Ks yeah. and Nancy. Yeah. So just forget about it. It's not the first got... time he's been on the show. He should know us by heart by now. Right? He knows everything about us, right? He does his research. Thomas does his research. I mean, I I know your uh, favorite pets and you know. <laughs> 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 Don't mean to sound so hate.